This podcast is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar Modules are designed, engineered, and assembled in their Texas-based 200-megawatt facility and serve residential, commercial, government, and utility applications. Adhering to the strictest quality standards, Mission Solar's modules outperform their competition in real-world conditions, proving to be an easy choice for installers, distributors, and developers. To find out more about Mission's high-power, American-quality modules, visit missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome. I distinctly remember how I felt when Donald Trump took the oath of office this January. I was thinking less about politics and more about information and journalism. It was clear that we were on the verge of an epochal shift in our discourse, that we had crossed the Rubicon into an informational civil war. Of course, that war had been brewing for a long time, both in the mainstream press and the hidden corners of the web. But this year, in 2017, it broke out in a big way. Many of us spend our days in the informational battlefield, hunched over our screens, bombarded with hot takes, daily outrages, and different versions of reality, which makes real journalism so damn important. So today, for our last episode of the year, we're cutting through the noise and choosing our favorite energy journalism of 2017. These are the stories that cut to the heart of reality, helping us understand the scandals, politics, bankruptcies, investments, and transformations underway in energy. Plus, we'll revisit our predictions from last year for 2017. Behind the mic are my usual co-hosts, clutching their lists and restlessly shaking their legs under the table, waiting for the year to end. Catherine Hamilton's in Washington, D.C. She's the co-founder and principal at 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Just happy to be here. (laughs) Jigger Shaw is in the D.C. area in Maryland. He's the president of Generate Capital. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how you doing? Excellent. Well, as we venture into the best journalism of the year, let's turn to our guest, three-time Pulitzer finalist Tony Bartlemy. Tony is a special projects reporter at The Post and Courier, which is South Carolina's largest newspaper. And earlier this month, he published a hell of a story on how Southeast ratepayers got saddled with expensive, unproven nuclear and clean coal projects. We've talked about those projects on the show before. Uh, But he and his team talked with 50 sources in industry and government. And they uncovered a systematic effort to change laws that would allow major utilities to put customers on the hook for risky projects worth $40 billion, according to their total, and and pay executives handsomely while doing so. So we've kind of known the politics of this for a while because of how poorly these projects have done over the last couple of years. But this investigation really ties it together and shed some new light on the subject. So Tony joins us from the Post and Courier offices in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, Tony, welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you guys today. The The intro to your story is uh, just a, a great piece of writing. It's devastating. Can you start off by reading an excerpt of the introduction for me? Sure, I'd be uh, delighted to. So our story was called Power Failure, and I'll begin. Listen to the folks who run some of our biggest electrical utilities. Tom Fanning, chief of Southern Company, in 2016 about its nuclear project in Georgia, which is years behind schedule. It has gone beautifully, and we're on schedule. Kevin Marsh, CEO of Scana, in 2016 about South Carolina's VC summer nuclear project a few months before it collapsed. We're excited about where we are. Lewis Hay, CEO of Florida Power and Light, in 2011 about nuclear upgrades that cost twice as much as promised. Customers should greatly benefit. And Fanning again in 2015, this time about his company's clean coal project in Mississippi, which isn't burning coal or cleaning it. We're on a real winning streak right now. They should have said thank you, because money they torched on these and other power plants wasn't theirs. It was yours. A fantastic intro. And that brings us to this big question. Why is this our money, so to speak, and how much did these utilities burn? So... So what happened was um, in, during the past decade, state legislatures working hand in glove with the lobbyists and utility company interests essentially rewrote the rule book for how power plants are built across, uh, across the country and, and how they're paid. Before uh, utilities uh, built them, you typically built them um, themselves and then charged 
ratepayers when they came online. But they they rewrote the rule book, shifting the risks of these projects from rate uh, from shareholders to the, their customers. During this shift, they suddenly invented massive pots of cash, and this um, ignited uh, you know a frenzy of spending. Uh, upwards of forty billion dollars so far uh, have been spent on uh, some incredibly risky uh, power plant projects. So it seemed to have started in the mid 2000s with this kind of gold rush to figure out how can we build big things as Jigger calls them and and how do we get the risk offloaded from us and allow consumers to pay for what we're going to say is keeping up with future demand from industrial customers. So this allowed them to start building plants and one of the things that they were able to get done was push through legislatures all this CWIP, it's called construction work and process language, to allow them to start working and get paid before, as Tony said, the plants come online. And what that does then, if you have it in statute, is it forces your regulators to approve projects that are done in that manner. Yeah, I think it's important to start from the premise of there was a desire in the mid-2000s to build nuclear plants. I remember I was on stage at the MIT Energy Conference with Jeff Immelt, and I asked him, I said, you know, how are these plants going to get built? They're so risky. None of the debt providers want to provide debt to these projects. And so would GE guarantee the debt and would GE put it on their balance sheet? And he said no, right? And so, so this is a scheme that was created to figure out how to build these big plants. Like, you know, I mean, and everyone was in on it, right? So I think the notion that the the utilities pulled the wool over our eyes, right? The utilities in this case went to the Georgia Public Service Commission for approval. They got rejected. And then they went to the state legislature to overturn the Public Service Commission. When President Obama came into office, he used Bush era uh, loan guarantee programs and railroaded these projects through that process because there was a hunkering for figuring out how to get this done. So, so Tony, that kind of brings us to this background. Um, do you feel like this was done in secret or is this an open secret? I mean, many of these, um, you know, many of these efforts were passed very quickly and in, in Georgia and South Carolina, the, um, you know, the ability to pay for these plants in this way were, they were approved very quickly compared to other you know, pieces of legislation or regulatory uh, considerations. What's your opinion on whether the utilities themselves were trying to, to fool us or if this was just kind of an open secret? You know, Stephen, that's a good question. I, I would say it was an open secret. Um, we're half and half. Let's say there was a lot of, uh, a lot of money. Uh, sent from power companies and their lobbyists to regulators uh, to kind of grease the grease the wheels, and you know, and then they also had the advantage of these very complicated financial maneuvers, and and these they use very benign language such as CWIP. You know, if you're a voter, um, you're not going to know what that means. Or advanced cost recovery was another term used. You, you know, that's not something to get really excited about. However. In state after state, this wasn't just a South Carolina or Georgia trend. This happened in state after state where state legislators um, passed these these um, base load review acts or the base load act in Mississippi. These these new laws that essentially allowed um, utilities, um, you know, a much larger check than they would have had otherwise. And, and so you write, this tool suddenly made you an investor in a future power plant. It was like paying a grocer as it builds a store with the hope that the groceries might be a little cheaper when it opens. Um, you use a lot of powerful language in this story. And I think it's just a, a really fascinating story that brings together a lot of the, the problems that we've witnessed over the last couple of years. And we've watched some of the most ambitious projects in the country, these multi-billion dollar clean coal and nuclear plants, become some of the biggest boondoggles in utility history. 2017 seemed like it was the year when things went off the rails for many of these projects. Do you think it was a turning point in terms of public attention and expenses? Absolutely. I don't I don't think the public was at all focused, let's say in 2016, except for perhaps maybe in Mississippi. Um, but 2017 is was was a pivotal year. This is this is the year when the nuclear the nuclear renaissance essentially melted down and fizzled. 
Um, this was the year that the, you know, the clean coal plant in Mississippi failed. We're talking billions and billions of dollars uh, spent on things that don't really work. And what I find interesting, Tony, is that now the federal government is, is taking taking up that mantle. So whether it's DOE offering loan guarantees again to these projects or this notice of proposed rulemaking through FERC. Now, those plants that we're talking about are not in areas that FERC regulates, but there is still this big move to try to prop up existing baseload plants in this need to to assert that baseload still remains an important piece of the power grid. Yeah, you're not seeing a real um, widespread response to these the laws themselves, which really ignited this bonfire of spending. Um, and then you're also still you're still seeing um, other efforts to, um, to to lay the the risks and costs on on, on taxpayers, for instance. And in South Carolina, um, Scana is desperately trying to get a two billion dollar tax break by the end of this year by writing off essentially their their failed plant. That's you know that's essentially a subsidy by uh, taxpayers across the country. Jaker, what's um what is your opinion of you often like lament that we can't do big things in this country and you point to our inability to build out large nuclear plants or you know viable clean coal projects as an example of why this country is struggling to pull off big infrastructure do we need tools like this to pull this off or um was this the wrong way to go about financing large projects that haven't been either done before in the history of this country or haven't been done in decades well, I'd say we need both, right? I mean, I think it's very obvious to almost all of us and was at the time at which these nuclear plants were approved that these nuclear plants were going to come in over budget and were going to come off the rails as they did. And there are a lot of us who said so, right? I mean, Amory Lovins clearly said so very articulately, but there's a lot of other folks who said so as well in uh, Georgia at the time. Um, separately, though, there are still big things that we need to do, whether it's build out the electric vehicle infrastructure in the country or, you know, our wastewater treatment plants are $200 billion behind schedule. There's all sorts of infrastructure in this country that needs to get built. And the way in which infrastructure normally gets built is through sort of these tax-exempt bond financings where you get a guarantee by some government agency um, to pay for these things. And they do pay work in progress when they build a road or build a bridge or do all these things, right? It was really the utility sector that didn't have these features um, in the past. And so we added these features to the utility companies. I think that they chose to use very poor judgment as to how they used the taxpayer, or in this case, the ratepayer's money. But in either way, I mean, it does feel like if we're going to shift 10, 15, 20 years faster than we're normally going to be able to shift to be able to prevent the worst impacts of climate change, we're going to need these tools. I think what might be m most concerning to readers is not necessarily the use of these tools if they were used judiciously. It's the, the way that executives were compensated as these plants spiraled out of control, um, the way that they hid the problems at these plants when talking to investors or policymakers. And there's a lot of that going on. Tony, what are some examples to you of um, companies that tried to hide their issues from the public when in fact they were uh, on a downward spiral in terms of cost increases? Well, I think one of the best examples is in Mississippi and where they were trying to build a clean coal plant, Southern Company. And, you know, this was a moderately complex project um, combining uh, gasification and carbon sequestration um, and essentially building a large petrochemical plant, things that, you know, we as a nation should be able to do. So what happened there was a uh, Southern company and its um, subsidiaries uh, got way behind in their engineering and essentially, um, you know, bungled the project, a uh, project that was, you know, about to, you know, supposed to cost about $2.4 billion, ended up costing more than $7.5 billion. Uh, and it still doesn't clean coal or turn it into um, gas. Um, and, 
it really sort of gets to the heart of what you we were we're talking about in this is as a nation are we able to do um pro, you know complex projects and and what's what's the cause what's the problem what what is causing these failures and and what we found was it was really management the the most powerful example of this is Brett Wingo who um oversaw a lot of the engineering at Kemper and he worked his way up the company and was really passionate about the the possibility of clean coal but over time realized that there was a lot of shady bookkeeping around progress of the plant and he was actually encouraged not to speak up and was threatened internally what can you tell us about Brett's story and what this says about uh, management of the project the Kemper project yeah, I, I drove to Mississippi and spent a lot of time with Brett Wingo, and Wingo was uh, one of the project managers at, at the Kemper facility in Mississippi, and he helped uh, design lots of uh, uh, parts of it and really knew it inside out. Um, but as as time went by, he realized that uh, other employees were fudging the schedule to make it look better than it was. And when he tried to raise the alarm, he actually called Tom Fanning, the uh, CEO of Southern Company, and said, hey, um, in effect, he said, Tom, uh, don't say uh, that this project is on schedule. It's not. And if you do, you could get into, uh, into trouble with the SEC. Tom Fanning reportedly said, okay, thanks for calling. Thanks for letting me know. Uh, we'll get uh, get to the bottom of it. And then weeks later, they kept on saying that the schedule is fine. Uh, telling investors that the schedule was fine, uh, Brett Wingo eventually, um, you know, blew the whistle and uh, has filed various uh, lawsuits. What's his biggest concern or complaint? His biggest concern is is about truth. You know, was Southern Company telling you know customers, regulators, um, investors the truth? And he doesn't believe they they did. So what if they had told the truth? What if they had come forward and said, look, this is really way more complicated than we ever thought it would be. It's going to cost us more money to do this and it really been forthcoming. Would that have changed how this is all spinning out? Well, they were in a race against time. They wanted to uh, to get that plan up and running to to qualify some for some uh, tax benefits. Um, again, sort of federal subsidies. And they were uh, they ended up blowing past those deadlines when reality, um, set in. Um, but if they had told the truth, um, their stock would have taken a huge hit. Their stock takes a huge hit. Um, you know, that could affect their salaries. Sure. And the irony is, of course, that the unregulated side of of almost every utility in this country is investing in the very technologies that they are fighting against every single day as they promote building older technologies that that, that aren't that that aren't faring well for them. I think the most incredible part of this story to me is when you start talking about the financial impact on ratepayers, on schools, on hospitals, on municipalities, and at the same time detail the enormous pay raises that these executives at utilities were getting during the construction of these plants. Um, you say that the top executives at five southern utilities earned an average of $104 million a year between 2012 and 2016. They totaled $520 million. You're looking at salaries um, in the, the tens of millions for utilities that were overse- executives that were overseeing these boondoggle projects. How angry are ratepayers now that they're hearing some of these numbers? Um, I think it's a huge, hugely important. I think you know, in South Carolina and Georgia, you know, there are, our customers are furious because they're essentially paying, uh, paying something for nothing. Um, you know, in South Carolina, uh, the, the failed VC summer nuclear plant, um, is essentially putting 18 cents of, uh, for every dollar on, uh, you know, uh, on our, our, on our electric bills, uh, we're paying 18 cents for nothing, uh, for every dollar that we send to SCANA. Um, people are furious. It's as if we're being taxed for no reason. Um, and that's a big deal in South Carolina. Yeah, some of the examples you put out there. So $0.18 cents a dollar on their, their monthly bills, $37 million every month, $500 million a year. So for the Charleston Animal Society, 
For the Charleston Animal Society, that's $40,000 a year in extra utility expenses. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, animal shelters typically don't have a lot of disposable income to throw around. Um, it's a, a million point two extra for the city of Charleston. It goes on and on. It's really remarkable. And this is kind of, this is the awakening that I think everyone's realizing. Like the, the costs have gotten so enormous that the political consequences are starting to bear out. We're all paying all this all this money now for nothing, and then then we start hearing about how you know Tom Fanning's making thirteen million dollars a year. You know, uh, Lynn Good from Duke, which um, you know, has has also had some issues, um, is making fourteen million dollars fourteen million dollars a year. It, it's uh, for a lot of people, it's infuriating. Right, but I mean, here's my thing: is that this is exactly what happened in the 70s. This is not different, right? I mean, San Antonio's utility company almost went bankrupt. Many of the utilities across the country almost bank- went bankrupt after Three Mile Island occurred, and all of the nuclear power plants that were under construction basically had to be stopped. And you know, and we're we're facing the same round again here, right? It's just, I guess, what I'm trying to figure out is whether people just don't care to learn the nuances of how infrastructure gets built and how electricity goes to their homes and how clean drinking water shows up in their faucet, right? Isn't this just a story around how people have gotten so used to all of these these utility companies sort of just supplying them with reliable resources that they never bothered to figure out how hard it was to get it there? When you say people jigger, who are you referring to? Like ratepayers or... The the decision. The animal makers. shelter and the city of Charleston. I mean, is it really I just their think job? We, Do they? Why? 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 Why is it their job to figure out the nuances of utility regulation? Well, because if they don't, then they pay an extra one point two million dollars on their bill. But, but shouldn't right? Isn't they, that what we have policymakers for and regulators that are not in the pockets of these utility companies? A, AARP came out against the CWIP, the Construction Work in Progress bill in Southern Companies Territory. And AARP National came in and said, this is not our job. We should not actually be you know, intervening in local rate cases or local legislative fights. They've recently reversed that position, kind of. But you know, to the extent that ARP cares deeply about their members who are retired, who are on fixed incomes, who want to make sure that their electricity bills don't go up by more than the rate of inflation, um, they should be more interested and more curious and their representatives should fight for them, but they're not. Yeah. So what are you supposed to do when, for example, today, the Georgia Public Service Commission voted unanimously in favor of a cost increase for the Vogel project? They rejected the recommendation by the commission staff. So while the commission staff did a report that laid out all these facts that looked like consumer interests were being reviewed and taken care of, the commissioners just completely overruled that and decided to go ahead and allow this plant, which was originally estimated to cost $14 billion and be online basically this year, is now going to cost almost $25 billion and won't be in service until 2021 and 2022. It's hard to know where people can come in when the commissioner can just roll the facts. I'll ask, I'll ask you the same question, Catherine. Bob Corker said he would never vote for this tax bill if it raised deficits $1. Then he finds out he's going to save $4 million a year personally on some loophole in the tax bill, and suddenly he votes for it, right? I just, I don't understand. Like, I'm happy to say, well, it's the Public Service Commission's fault, or it's Tom Fanning's fault, et cetera. But I'm just saying that we were all in on it, right? Everyone was in on it. The solar industry definitely used the nuclear plants problems to get all of our rules passed with Bubba McDonald in 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 Georgia. The reason we were able to win so much is because Southern Company was was so negatively impacted, right? The reason why we're winning in all 50 states is because every public service commission in the country no longer believes most of what comes out of the electric utilities mouth. And they have so lost credibility that we are now able to make these arguments. And when the utility says, no, it's wrong, you know, the utility commissioners don't fall for it as much. There are a couple big issues here that we've that we need to unpack. And I want to ask you about, Tony. The first is what Catherine brought up, which is um, if you look at the Vogel project and the decision in Georgia to continue 
potentially at a $25 billion cost. What regulators are saying is that we've gone too far down this path, and rather than get nothing, we should spend billions more and potentially get that power plant. Um, you know, that may not happen in other states. But that's that's one question. Have we just gone so far that we need to build these plants no matter what? And the other question is this sense of helplessness, which um, I want to follow up with. But what are your thoughts on how far down the road we've gone thus far? You know, it's, it kind of reminds me of a gambler, you know, who's 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 just betting more because they've they've lost so much. You know, you know, is what are what are what are their options moving forward from today? You know, is would it be more beneficial to to use future money in a in a more effective way uh, you know i i found that the georgia's in a really interesting case um they've actually been very transparent about what's going on they have a kind of a bang up construction monitor who's been finding all sorts of problems the regulators uh basically have been ignoring them um and and it's sort of understand, you know, the regulators, uh, the Public Service Commission in Georgia and South Carolina, they all kind of hang out together. They're all wind and dine by the industry. It's it's a sort of a legal corrupt kind of a legal corruption that's going on. Um, and that kind of feeds into this sense of powerlessness. And, you know, what as a as a customer can you do when you're up against so much money? Yeah. And that's where I just highly disagree with you, Jigger, because. It's not up to the citizen to understand how this type of regulation works. I mean, sure, in a in a ideal society, we would all understand every decision that was being made. But we hire, uh, we vote for policymakers, and in theory, we either vote for um, or get you know use our lawmakers to appoint regulators who are supposedly acting in our best interests. And we rely on those people to make decisions in the best interest of our pocketbook and the health of the grid in in the utility sector. So, Tony, who should, you know, who's responsible for this? Um, And ultimately, who's responsible for understanding the problem as Jigger outlined it, if in fact, we've been dealing with this kind of stuff for decades? Well, ultimately, you know, it's the Public Service Commission's are they're they they're they're supposed to be the judges? You know, they're the ones who are supposed to balance the needs of the customer versus the industry. But you know, when you kind of take a look at you know the regulators, uh, the the public service commissioners, and how they've kind of acted over the past decade, you know, you can look at all the conferences they go to. Um, I just heard a great audio clip from a public commissioner, a public service commissioner in Florida, who introduces a. A meeting by saying, isn't it great that we're here together where we don't have to worry about sunshine laws and other Florida laws? And everybody sort of laughs. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a frustrating situation for, for regular folks. Well, and it's worse than that, right? In most of the states in the country, one of the largest donors to local causes is the utility company. If you wanted to get something for your Girl Scout troop, the utility company pays for it. If you want to get something for your t-ball team, the utility company pays for it. If you want a gay pride parade, the utility company pays for it. And so, so, you know, you've got a tremendous amount of cash going into the community every day with their logo all over everything. Tony, a lot of scrutiny has come on these projects now. It feels like the tide turned in 2017. Are we at a turning point? And what do you think we're, will come of these projects in 2018? I know each one is, is very different, but you know, just generally speaking, now that there's more attention being paid on this story, do you expect any materially cha- material changes in the way these projects are financed, supported, or how laws are changed. So I guess the optimist in me would say, yeah, it's a pivotal change. We're all going to, you know, we're all going to start changing things and the laws will be changed. Uh, I don't know. The pessimist in me says that utilities have a record of essentially ignoring things uh, when they go wrong and they just keep moving forward with uh, what they want to do. So I'm not particularly optimistic um, that there'll be major changes. I think it was a pivotal and very important year, both in terms of these projects and also energy policy. Um, But yeah, I don't know. People read your story. What would you want them to take away from it? I think it's really important for them to know that there was this nationwide shift in the rule book. 
and it was done quietly, perhaps in the open, but quietly, that really essentially created a new tax for something that we don't get. I mean, I guess I'd ask you, though, as a reporter, now that you've gone through all this, do you do you trust your utility company? Well, you know, there's the old journalistic saying, you know, trust your mother, but check her out. Um, if your mother says she loves you, check your sources or, or get a second source. Yeah, there's, it's, it, there's all sorts of yeah iterations. Um, I'm, I think I actually trust my mom more than uh, electric utilities. But, uh, I really liked that you um, brought in the human element too. I thought your story, which I'm sure Stephen will link to, you know, it describes what the utility process is and what the commission did, commissions did. But it also really tells the stories of humans that are impacted and small businesses that are impacted by those decisions. I think it would make a great documentary. Yeah, I started out with, a, you know, I, I really wanted to start out with a woman uh, um, uh, about to shoot somebody with her shotgun because she was so frustrated. Um, she would lived near the Kemper Energy Facility in Mississippi, and they just kind of came in and they were pumping water from her pond without her permission. And that, that was sort of a metaphor for the larger story that, you know, the people would just feel overwhelmed by these huge, huge companies that have so much, uh, you know, so much legislative firepower. Well, if you're looking to buy the script rights to this story, you know who to turn to. Tony Bartleby is the special projects reporter at the Post and Courier, again, South Carolina's largest newspaper. And he's um, he's been involved in some really cool stories, in uh, including a story called Every Other Breath in 2016 that uh, won some awards. It's a series about climate change. And we're going to link to this recent piece in the Post and Courier in our show notes Tony, thanks a lot for coming on the show. A fantastic read, and we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure to talk to you guys. Let's take a minute here to talk about our sponsor, Mission Solar Energy. Third-party testing has shown that Mission Solar modules have the highest PTC ratings of any American manufactured module. You know what that means? It means the modules maintain higher output in real-world conditions when compared to other American modules. Mission Solar's modules are subjected to multiple quality checks throughout the manufacturing process and endure stringent quality and reliability testing. Each product exceeds industry requirements and is backed by an independent 25-year linear warranty. To learn more about Mission Solar's high-quality modules and to see them get run over and shot by a tank and hit with a flamethrower, visit missionsolar.com. Thanks, Mission. Let's turn our attention now to some other good energy journalism out there in the world. And boy, is there a lot of it. Before we get to our own choices, I will say that we turned to Energy Twitter for some top stories of 2017. And we got a long list of responses. I'm going to link to my own tweet in the notes there, not because I want to be self-referential, but because there are so many stories that folks recommended. There are about a dozen or so there that will keep you busy for a while. And now on to our own curated list Catherine, what grabbed your eyeballs this year? Uh, This was a piece that David Roberts and Alvin Chang did, and it was a recent one. It was December 15th on Vox, and it was called Meet the Microgrid, the Technology Poised to Transform Electricity. And what I love about this article is that it has pictures, and it's very descriptive. This is a picogrid. This is a nanogrid. This is a microgrid. This is also a microgrid. This building is connected to the big grid. So it goes through every type of microgrid imaginable. And there are plenty of links to other resources. But this really gives an incredibly good visual example. I think Vox is particularly good at this. And David Roberts has had other pieces that are similar. But I thought this one was particularly great. And I hope if he's listening, please do this. Do one also for resilience. We need to explain to people what resilience really is. So you can see it's not about the big power plants and the big transmission lines. I really liked this one. Yeah, it was very comprehensive. And I would say it was relevant because this year seemed to be the year of the microgrid because of all the storms we had and the renewed interest on localized power. I would say it's one of the more sophisticated conversations we've had in a while on the development of microgrids in different markets. Well, it's I hope the, somebody at the Atlanta airport reads it. Yeah, I was going to say it's it's the year of talking about the microgrid, not necessarily the year of building the microgrid. Yeah, well, microgrid development is expanding. I mean, we our our research shows a clear expansion of you know renewable and non renewable microgrids, much of which is being developed for resilience reasons. So this stuff is happening. There's there's there are actual projects getting developed. 
Catherine, there were three last year. There were six this year. That's 100% growth. There you go. <laughs> uh, and I guess okay. Atlanta Hartfield Airport is going to be the next one. Oh, my Lord. Can you imagine how that happens? Well, when you do have power back on, Catherine, and you can get access to your your Kindle or your computer uh, when it's you know connected to your microgrid there at your home, what else are you reading? Yeah, so I have been looking at not just, uh, you know, I get hard copy uh, New York Times weekend edition. So I tend to read actual newspaper stories. And I've really enjoyed the New York Times articles, especially about coal country. They've done a lot of articles. And just this last weekend, they did one on Wyoming. And kind of the the juxtaposition of coal miners and coal workers versus wind workers and there most of them are trump supporters but just what what their values are and how they think about energy and development those have been really interesting some of those have been written by clifford kraus they have good photography in with those as well um and then i've enjoyed lisa friedman's uh articles in new york times too i've also looked at twitter a lot because twitter is of course such a great way to access not just links to articles but there are articles that are that are part of the Twitter conversation. And you know I loved Ari Pesco from Harvard Law's tweets on the DOE Noper comments. It enabled me to read the comments without reading the comments. And that was that was wonderful and a sort of a beautiful example of how Twitter can really be its own form of journalism. The New York Times did do some fantastic reporting on coal country. Clifford Krauss and Lisa Friedman have done a lot on the energy and climate side and Coral Davenport as well. Uh, Coral had some interesting political reporting throughout the year as administrator, EPA administrator Scott Pruitt tried to develop the legal argument for ripping down the clean power plant. So she wrote some great stories on the political chess pieces. And I will say from the New York Times, I remember The Daily, which is just this explosive podcast, a daily news podcast that has broken the podcast space wide open. They did an interview with Mark Gray, a Kentucky coal miner, where Michael Barbaro, the the host, broke down crying and was moved by Mark Gray's story after realizing he didn't really understand what coal miners had gone through. And it sparked this huge debate on Twitter, of which I responded to, uh, and, and across the internet about um, how why coal miners have an outsized impact on our media environment. So it was a good interview and a thought-provoking one because of the reaction that it got in, a, in an extension of the coal reporting that you just referenced. Inside Energy is also great on that stuff for yes. Um, for this, the, most of their pieces are short snippets. This week was a clean coal uh, piece that was twenty-seven minutes long, but most of them are like three or four minutes. Jigger, what titillated the senses this year? So I'm generally looking for sort of forward-thinking stories, and so I loved uh, Tom Price's uh, piece, "The Last Auto Mechanic" on Medium. Um, just a great piece. It, it was, you know, captioned. Uh, America's transportation economy and landscape is about to be utterly transformed into a world beyond driving or drivers or even car mechanics. Enjoy the ride. And it, I think it really like set out for me what it looks like to get to this electrification world. And it's really not about gasoline prices. And that's the amazing thing about it, right? Is for 15 years, we've been talking really just about, well, you know, it's about the the price of fuel and how much money you save. And it's actually something much bigger than that. And it's really about bringing joy back to transportation. Jigger, I'm really glad you poured pointed us to that article because I've recently been noticing all of the pushes on autonomous vehicles in the bus and shuttle space that are already happening. And of course, the big story of this year was, you know, GM launching 20 potential new electric and fuel cell vehicles by 2023 and a bunch of other automakers inking partnerships with uh, autonomous vehicle players on the, in the software side or in the actual vehicle development side or making acquisitions, or announcing new models coming up over the next five years. It was a pretty heady year for activity, or announced activity at least. Yeah, I think that's right. And finally, you wanted to talk about fuel cells, right? Yeah, well, you know, I think that this is really more of a, uh, you know, teasing uh, Eric Wessoff, but um, 
But, you know, the the fact that Quartz did a story about how Amazon is differentiating itself from its competition by installing hydrogen-powered forklifts, and then Walmart followed suit and decided that after testing it for a long time, they were going to do the whole thing as well, is is pretty funny, right? I don't know that either Walmart or Amazon believe that their hydrogen fuel cells is what's differentiating themselves around their future trajectory. But it is pretty interesting that fuel cells are back. Yeah. We still haven't seen a company with a profitable year, though. <laughs> Maybe well, that'll Ballard change. Well, Ballard is profitable. They're- Ballard was profitable in 2017. Okay. And we did see a 30% increase in fuel cells shipped this year. And we will have a year in review in fuel cells from Matthew Klippenstein, who has written a couple fuel cell pieces for us this year. And uh, look look out for that in the coming week. I took a few hours to scan the web, look at my bookmarks, think about all the stories that I've read throughout the year, look through the journalists that we've interviewed. And I decided that, you know, I, I work every day with this really talented group of journalists at Green Tech Media. And instead of focusing on a lot of stories from around the web, I wanted to focus in on some of the journalism that we've done at GTM. Because I'm just really fortunate to work with such an intelligent group of writers and get to form stories with them. And and some of the my favorite stories from each writer are representative of the bigger issues we've tried to tackle on this show throughout the year. Julia Piper, who's my you know colleague and fellow editor, wrote some great pieces on the 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 war over nuclear power in South Carolina and Georgia, and she has a fantastic piece co-written with our uh, new writer, Emma Faringer-Merchant, about the politics of nuclear in the Southeast, very relevant to today's conversation. One of my favorite stories was about global oil majors uh, increasing their investment in solar and wind. And there have been you know, a handful of major acquisitions. In fact, just today, Shell announced a major acquisition of a UK energy supplier continuing its march into the electrification of everything. And Julia's piece, the global oil majors are poised to res- for a resurgence in solar and wind investments, was a great accounting of all the stuff that's happened over the last year. Julian Spector, who's our storage reporter, wrote a piece in collaboration with Shale Khan over here on the research side about um, why the California independent system operator was using outdated cost estimates to, uh, you know, to to argue for the Puente NRG natural gas peaker plant there in California. And so we actually show that they were using 2014 data and they went and revisited the application. And now it looks like that Puente project is going to get abandoned. So, you know, a piece of impact journalism there. Um, Jeff St. John has been doing a lot of really great work on the DOE's NOPER and looking at why, you know, the technologies, the grid edge technologies that DOE has supported are missing from the the reliability analysis that it put together initially right before that NOPER. And accounting for, he, he did an accounting of all the major grid studies on how wind and solar can interact with the grid and you know, we found systematically that grid authorities find no no instability caused by wind and solar thus far, and even with much higher penetration levels, will not. And then the last one from him was the the um, the first solar story on using PV for, to rival frequency response services from natural gas peaker plants, and he wrote two stories on the experience of first solar and nrel testing out those plants and the the rise of dispatchable solar will become ever important and finally emma Faringer merchant who's our newest reporter wrote a fantastic piece about uh, superstorm sandy's lessons for consolidated edison five years on and it is a very detailed accounting of everything that con ed did over the last five years and how it's trying to build on those um resiliency and hardening efforts so I'm really proud of our team. Uh, I have the privilege to work with um, such an intelligent and thoughtful group of journalists. And then finally in April, we launched The Interchange, our sister podcast here, publicly with Shale Khan. It was behind a paywall for a little while. 
and then we decided to pull it out and make it a different long-form interview show, and that was a big piece of our content expansion this year. So it was a big year for GTM. Yeah, you guys do a great job. And a lot of your journalists, and you have a lot of female journalists too, and I celebrate those, um, are they're really good on Twitter. So Emma, she's new to you all, but she's been really good on Twitter. Um, I also have um, enjoyed other journalists like Catherine Trawick from Bloomberg, who covers FERC, and Gavin Bade from Utility Dive. They are also great on Twitter. And it's so nice to see journalists from different outlets, whether it's Green Tech Media or Bloomberg or Utility Dive or Vox, you know, supporting each other um, in their journalism, especially on Twitter as they link to each other's stories. I think that that helps everybody um, be smarter on all of these topics. Yeah, we're all fiercely competitive, but we're friends with each other. And, you know, we, we help each other out in different ways. We link around to each other. We use different sites as resources, but there's always some competitiveness there. Uh, I love the ecosystem of journalists in this space. It really is um, inspiring and super informative. Hey, let's go back over to our predictometer, shall we? We, at the end of last year, made some predictions about what we thought was going to happen this year. And I'm going to revisit those. I, I took a listen to our podcast from last year, this morning, wrote down our predictions, and I want to see what played out and what did not. Catherine, over to you first. You predicted no more political gridlock now that Republicans have control of government in D.C., and you said that we need now to double down on defense of solar and wind tax credits, which is exactly what happened in this tax bill. So kudos to you. Oh, well, it's funny because there was actually gridlock up until this week when they were able to get the tax bill through. Um, so my, I was going to be completely <laughs> held up as false unless they had done this tax bill. Um, so there's some pros and cons to that. But yeah, definitely we ended up having to defend when we did not think we would necessarily need to. Yeah, you also said we need to watch out for repeal of PURPA. And Congress definitely started considering rolling back PURPA. And then you said we need to focus on infrastructure with uh, storage and transmission provisions playing an important role in that. We did not get an infrastructure bill, but when we saw the White House's infrastructure plan, storage and transmission were both in there. Yeah, and the president still is talking about them. So remember how I said there was gridlock until this week? That's why some of those other things haven't been done, perhaps. So I think going into the new year, those are still things we need to watch out for. Mm-hmm. Jigger talked about Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates' big groundbreaking uh, portfolio of uh, startups. And, and this is a company that really wants to, according to Gates and others, invest in breakthrough energy companies. And Jigger said that he thinks that investors are going to shift away from, at Breakthrough Energy Ventures, are going to shift away from new technologies and instead focus on their first commercial deployments you know, bridging the valley of death, not focusing on stuff that's just coming out of labs, but stuff that's just about to be commercialized. And just last week, we got a glimpse of Breakthrough Energy Ventures uh, strategy going forward. Katie Fehrenbacher wrote a story for us, and there are five tenants to investment. Cheap energy storage, it's unclear exactly what kind of storage they're talking about. Solar fuels, that's way farther away from commercial deployment. Global microgrids, much closer to commercial deployment. Zero carbon building materials, um, where you might have like injectable carbon or something in the building materials, also closer to commercial deployments. And geothermal drilling techniques, which are closer to commercial deployments. So I'd say, Jigger, you were pretty spot on with that prediction. Uh, all in a day's work, my friend. All in a day's work. <laughs> No. Wait, did Apple buy Tesla? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're never going to let you live that one down. <laughs> Come on, it's it's probably still going to happen. But um but it was funny because um um somebody tweeted at me uh about how they were doing microgrids um uh Ben Atia and 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 I said, "Yeah, you know, that's just because, you know, Gates and Vinod lost so much money on uh Vinod Kosla lost so much money on um, breakthroughs." And then Vinod responded and said, "Disagree." <laughs> so well, the money speaks for itself yeah exactly eric wessoff has a great piece on green tech media that will forever be enshrined there about all of his investments yeah. and his losses vicious vicious 
but the, the solar fuel stuff is probably the furthest away from commercialization. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I certainly don't have a problem with them continuing to do basic research and all that work. I just don't think any of that is going to be material in terms of helping us prevent six degrees of warming. Why not? Well, because I think as Shell and everybody else has shown, it takes between 20 and 40 years to get to a 1% penetration. That's certainly been true for solar and wind. And then for most other technologies, it took another 20 to 40 years to hit a 10% penetration. Solar and wind will break that. And it looks like our journey from 1% penetration to 10 will be done in 10 to 15 years, which is pretty freaking amazing. But when you look at coal or oil or lots of other technologies in the past, it took a very long time to even reach 10% penetration. Well, you got a, a mostly true on your prediction for Breakthrough Energy Ventures, but you did have one that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't come true, which was that small hydro would finally get its day in court, that you thought the administration would embrace small hydro. Didn't really happen. Well, I don't know that I thought the administration would embrace it, although, like, you know, I'm not sure that they've rejected it. I will say you're right. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. But um, I know Hull Street Energy just bought two major portfolios of hydro up in the Northeast and New York, and then there's others as well. So there's certainly been a lot more M&A on the small hydro side uh, in the last few years. Uh, but you're right, it hasn't come through yet. My prediction that the Trump administration would be malleable and open to renewables, I think I largely was dead wrong on that one. Um, it's pretty clear that they have a playbook written by Robert Murray and other folks in the coal industry and they're sticking to it. There's just there's it's just uh, not a re- it's it's a renewables agnostic administration, but the, they're not malleable in a positive way toward renewables, at least publicly. And um, you know, I said that this Trump administration doesn't re- represent doomsday for clean energy, which is kind of what we were all saying. And I was separating climate policy from renewables, but um, if you look at the way this administration has tried to rewrite rules and influence federal regulators, um, you know, tear down the clean power plan, at least symbolically move away from the global climate deal. Uh, the forces guiding renewables are still strong, but I, I do think that I was a little too optimistic about this administration. Yeah, and don't forget Suniva, and the president has to take a decision before January 26th. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Well, that'll come right up the first week or first few weeks of the year. We're going to be talking about that one. Well, let's tell our listeners something they may not know now. Catherine, what's your story? Yeah, so there are a couple of things. One is just a small recap. The tax bill did pass without any bad PTC, ITC provisions, but there are still something called the BEAT provisions that are confusing and will impact some companies worse than others. There was also an extenders bill introduced yesterday that took care of the orphan tax credits, at least temporarily. So we'll see how that goes after the first of the year. FERC had their first had a had their last public meeting of the year today, where Commissioner LaFleur handed Commissioner, as opposed to Chairman Chatterjee, a bag of coal. And uh, Chatterjee said, oh, a 90-day supply. So pretty pretty great little exchange there. <laughs> um, That's and, amazing. Yeah, it was, it was great. And I found out on that through Twitter, about that on Twitter. Then finally, for people to really pay attention to, so the EPA is seeking comment on a replacement for the Clean Power Plan. There are two ways in which people can um, submit comments, and I think this is really important for everyone to do. One is on the repeal of the existing plan, and you can even just send a cover letter saying, I still believe what I submitted the first time to your old comments. And then there is now an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, which for which there will be 60 days to comment on how the clean power plan should be replaced. And EPA wants to do this inside the fence line proposal, but I think people should be able to comment on anything um, to build the record. I think it's really important for people to engage. So January is going to look like a very busy month. I, I need a button that allows me to just press. I still believe what I did the first time. That's right. That's right. That would be very easy. That's, that's just called like on Facebook. The easy button. Okay, Jigger's got his easy button. He's ready to press it. 
and get 2017 over with and make 2018 a little bit easier. Before we close it out, what's your story? Tell us something we don't know. After months of lobbying, uh, we were able to get Governor Cuomo to sign uh, the energy storage bill that was passed unanimously by the the state legislature. For a long time, there was a tremendous amount of pushback coming from the governor's office because uh, they thought that um, the utility companies really just wanted to own the battery storage and they didn't like this notion that the uh, um, that the legislature had or private ownership. And uh, But the final rules still have to be done by the Public Service Commission. And so it's still possible that this whole thing... Um, you know, falls apart. Public Service Commission just relents to utility ownership of the battery storage infrastructure. Um, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see. Uh, the other thing I wanted people to you know to, to pay attention to was the Atlanta airport uh, crisis. Many airports around the world actually have microgrids. They have cogeneration facilities that allow them to run the the airports um, even if there are major power outages. Um, Atlanta Airport did not have one of these. Um, separately, their redundant electricity infrastructure came through the same area that the fire uh, uh, went through. So both sets of power lines were going through the same area, which didn't make them so redundant. Um, and so it's just another way of highlighting how electric utility companies are not actually you know, like proactively thinking about critical infrastructure and how to really make sure that they have very high power quality at those places and reliability. Well, the, you know, toward the end of the year, as people were started criticizing Rick Perry's Noper, there were a lot of analyses that came out showing the cause of outages. And most of those outages were along the transmission and distribution system, largely in the distribution system. Very few of them had anything to do with the availability of power plants. I mean, basically almost nothing to do with the availability of power plants. Oh, yeah. And That's the true. Atlanta airport is yet another example uh, that this whole fuel supply thing doesn't apply to the vast majority of economically impactful outages. Well, but now, you know, Commissioner Chatterjee has a 90-day supply of coal. That's right. <laughs> I, I um, walked into the office the other day, and sitting on my desk was an envelope. And I opened up that envelope and found a nice note from a gentleman named Ezra Angrist. And Ezra wrote a book called A Climate Carol in Rhyme. He was so frustrated with the administration's climate denial that he wrote an entire Christmas-themed book around Trump's denial. And it's called, uh, yeah, Climate Carol in Rhyme, Being a Ghost Story of our climate. And I wanted to read the introduction because I just thought it was a really nice letter and a, and a funny book and a well-illustrated one at that. So <clears throat> here we go. Let me <clears throat> open it up. You're fired, shouted Ebenezer Huge from the table's head. Who's next, Pensit? Huge loudly said. Pensit replied, wait, boss, you've just fired our best worker. Her? With a face like that? She was surely a shirker. Pensit said, we've got so many open slots, you can't fire any more. This place barely runs as it is. Please stop, I implore. And it's just got these great illustrations, and it goes on to bring Trump around to talk about his the consequences of his actions. And I just thought it was uh, really cute, and uh, uh, you should go check it out. Ezra, Ezra Angrist is the author, and it's a very well-illustrated book. I was going to start sipping on some hot cocoa, but I think I need something stronger for that one. Yeah, motor oil? <laughs> hey, Catherine, what's the chances that we get an infrastructure bill next year? Oh, I don't know. I'm not a betting person, as you know. Oh, no. Oh, I'll no. still work on it. I think we should still try. <laughs> well, I just don't think Trump has much else to push. It feels like immigration and infrastructure are his two remaining things to push. Yeah, I mean, I th I think there's a chance, and I think people are generally interested in it. We just don't really have much money left. Mm. Hey guys, this was fun. What a year, huh? It, it was yes. um, kind of it wild. It was good to see our industry really be resilient to you know sort of um, all of the pressures that were put on it. There's a lot to be down about, but there were 
plenty of good stories and that resilience story, the industry resilience story is certainly one. Yeah, and I've looked forward every week to talking to you guys and to having people listen and really give us great feedback and and a lot of props for being there every week. Oh yeah. This is the point in the year when we always give the give thanks to our co-hosts, my new family, my friends, and all of our listeners for coming to us every week and, you know, clearly helping us find new listeners too because we continue to grow and expand this community and and the podcasting world is expanding too there are a lot of new shows out there and we appreciate you sticking with us and helping us grow as the medium itself grows you know you can you can do us a favor give us a christmas present by going over to apple podcasts giving us a five-star review and a review um you know tell us what you like about the show a lot of you have been doing that in recent months and we really appreciate it it is another way to help people find the show and if you don't subscribe for whatever reason and you're listening to this on the green tech media website or somewhere out there in the ether go over to apple podcasts or soundcloud or stitcher or google play whatever you use to download your podcasts and click that subscribe button happy holidays everyone we do appreciate you so much be well Catherine, enjoy your holidays. We'll talk to you in the new year. Thanks. You guys, you guys too. Jigger, always a pleasure. Happy holidays. Thanks. Love you guys. Love you too. With Jigger Shaw, Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Happy holidays and happy new year. Happy holidays.